Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. I mean, our first project for Whole Foods that we did at the end of 03, early 04, like I funded that on the back of credit cards, right? I mean, and it's just like one of those things where people were just sort of like, I just, I find that people, it's just weird to me that people go to angel investors and say, I have this business plan or whatever. And, you know, why don't you give me a couple hundred thousand dollars? And people actually do it. I'd never give people a hundred thousand dollars for just having a business plan. That's crazy. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and actions shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Welcome to Suncast, episode 134. I hope you're having a wonderful Christmas holiday this week. And thank you to all of you who've reached out in the tribe to wish me happy holidays as well. I just love our family. It was almost exactly a year ago that I had the honor and privilege of having the eponymous Jigger Shaw on Suncast. And to celebrate the anniversary of this episode and the fact that it's currently one of the most downloaded episodes of the year, I'm republishing it so the numerous new listeners to Suncast this year can get a chance to hear it. Maybe you've heard him on the popular podcast, Energy Gang. Or you've helped put him at the top of the Solar 100 list as one of his nearly 20,000 Twitter followers. But hopefully today, you'll hear something you haven't heard before as we discuss how Jigger's early career and family life shaped the companies that he's built. Why Jigger believes that you can't build a business as a side hustle. Sun Edison's early days of financing and how that influences his own investing ethos. Things like what Jigger sees smart entrepreneurs doing to win, and of course, his bold prediction. You can find more great founders' stories just like this one over in the archives at mysuncast.com, more than 132 episodes and counting. While you're there, check out our Suncast tribe where you can be a part of our inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. You click on the member button and learn more. I hope to be updating that video here soon, so I apologize that it is six months old and a little stale. But for now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we turn back the dial to this powerful conversation here on Suncast. Jigger is an icon in the solar industry. From founding Sun Edison to leading the Carbon War Room as its first CEO, Jigger has been innovating upon business models in the energy and infrastructure arenas for more than two decades. He's now co-founder and president of specialty finance company, Generate Capital, and we'll talk some about that today. They invest in infrastructure assets in what they refer to as the world's critical resources, that being energy, water, agriculture, and basic materials. In 2014, Kling Technica ranked him tied for number one in their Kling Tech champions list for the year. Tied with whom, you might ask? None other than Elon Musk. 
Jager, thanks for taking time to be with us today. My pleasure. Wow, that was a great introduction. <laughs> well, we try to do our homework here, Jigger. But you know, one of the things I learned in my research, actually, that I didn't appreciate enough is just how deep solar runs in your roots, in your family, in the ethos of your story. So I'd like to, I guess, you know, perhaps as a way of background, you know, I read in your book, you know, your dad has a medical practice from Tampico, Illinois. And, you know, you watched how your brother and you, you were affected by the work-life balance. You know, it's a data point of what is possible and what is difficult to achieve in growing a business. But you also mentioned that really early on in life, you discovered solar. I'd love to hear a little bit about that as we sort of begin this journey. Yeah, you know, I I don't think I was a lot different than today's kids where, you know, if you don't know anything about electricity, you don't naturally believe that electricity comes from coal. I mean, you're sort of like, hey, where does the energy come from? It comes from the sun and the wind and the waves and, you know, things that you would think that Mother Nature has to provide. And, you know, my dad was one of those folks who, uh, you know, like back then there were a lot of traveling college salesmen who would sell you encyclopedias and books. And my dad just used to always love to buy those books. I remember just just getting sick and tired of it one time and just saying, look, I'm not going to read all these books you buy. So this book just sat on the shelf. And then one day when I was like 16, I picked it up and read it. And, you know, it made complete sense to me. They had like two pages on coal and two pages on nuclear and two pages on you know natural gas and wind and solar. And I was like, they were all equal, you know? And I was like, yeah, I think the solar one's, you know, one that I think is really intriguing. And you didn't initially jump straight into solar. You followed the good path of any son who's given the privilege and opportunity to go to school and try to build a career. You know, one of the things that intrigues me about following someone's career path, and we don't have to go through the whole trajectory of exactly what you did, but I'm always intrigued by the defining moment or catalyst, as I might call it, for leaving your first job, right? So it's not always, perhaps there's something interesting about your first job, but there's almost always something interesting about leaving that first job, especially in particular, maybe your second, third, fourth, when you decide to move into a new industry or a new era in your world. So what was that for you? What was that catalyst to move away from your first job? And how'd you know it was time to move on? Well, I mean, ever since I was 16, my whole theory on life is that you just run as hard as you can in the direction that you've chosen until you realize it doesn't make any sense to run in that direction, right? And so I've been running this whole direction ever since, and since I was 16, because it just kept making sense, right? I mean, you know, at the time when I wrote that, read that book, I remember it was solar and nuclear. right? And, you know, I went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign for my engineering degree, and I picked mechanical engineering because it was the most flexible. It was sort of like the liberal arts of engineering. <laughs> You know, learned a lot about material properties and on, you know, like buoyancy and like all these other sort of like, you know, parts of mechanical engineering. And it all kept making sense. Solar made sense. Nuclear made sense at the time. And I just kept pushing. It kept pushing. And, you know, when I graduated from college, the first job I could get in the renewable energy industry was in the wind industry. Right. And that was Atlantic Orient, right? That's right. Moved up to Vermont, a beautiful place to <laughs> be right after college. And I was right across the river from Hanover and at Dartmouth. And right, right. So I was hanging out with all those folks. And it was a great place, you know, to have my formative years. But, you know, it just never really took off. This was like a 50 kilowatt machine. And right. even now, the small wind space is a tough space to be in. Actually, in your book, you mentioned the value of a brand and the clout of a high powered business card. Does that have something to do with how you found yourself sort of working in? to VP and the MBA program? 
Well, you know, when I left Atlantic Orient Corporation, I was, you know, went down to D.C. to be uh, with my wife, then girlfriend. You know, took a job being a Beltway Bandit at mm-hmm. a company called Energetics. And we, you know, did consulting for Department of Energy and others. And I learned a lot in that job, but it certainly wasn't where I wanted to be long term. I really wanted to be in the business of doing solar. Right. And so the first job that I saw that was in that area that uh, was offered was the job at BP Solar. Mm. And so, you know, when I saw it come up, I applied for it, worked hard on it, you know, ended up getting an offer and uh, taking that job. And, you know, at the time at which I took the job, I didn't know what the value of a business card was. <laughs> but, you know, I'm one of those folks who, you know, really believes that you have a lot to learn from other people. And yeah. uh, when I was at BP, they had this whole initiative called Knowledge Management. Mm-hmm. And so they encourage you to fill out this profile and put all of your best knowledge into the computer and it captured it for you. But then you also got to search from all 100,000 or so BP employees. Mm. So I used to search that all the time. And there was like some guy working on hydrogen and some guy working on wind and some guy working on like, you know, community relations in Prudhoe Bay, Alaska. And, and so it was an extraordinary experience to learn a lot about, you know, like BP's business and the world around us. And, you know, that was true externally too. It was amazing how many people called me back when they heard from BP Solar, you know, like you learn. A lot of folks who listen to the Suncast are entrepreneurs or they're intrapreneurs or even entrepreneurs. And they're probably thinking about something as a side hustle, right? Maybe they're consulting, they're freelancing, but they're working for one of these big companies. You know, you mentioned in an interview a while back with Rob Weiss that a key failure is trying to start a business while you're at a day job. You said that I think that discipline is the key and it's really hard to do three to four things at the same time. You can dream, but you can only implement one thing at a time. You've started a number of companies. Do you still feel that way? Do you still feel like you can only focus on one thing at a time, especially in a time and era where lots of folks are hailing the era of the side hustle? Is it something that just doesn't doesn't work? Well, you know, it's one thing when you say, you know, I drive for Uber, right? And so you (laughs) work eight hours a day and then on your drive home, you actually like pick up some, you know, folks on the way back and then, you know, make a little bit of money on the side, right? That's that you can handle, right? But like when you're trying to create a new company and you've got a thesis and you've tested the thesis and you've done all the things that you can do part-time, nighttime, you know, et cetera, then at some point you got to jump in with both feet and try it out. And, you know, I mean, like my most recent venture at Generate Capital, you know, I was on boards. I like had advisory positions, had all sorts of stuff. And as soon as I took this job at Generate, I decided, frankly, to start Generate, like with my two partners, you know, I got on the phone and on email and said, look, guys, like I don't have any more time for you. No more bandwidth. I can't do this advisory position. I can't do this board position. I can't do this. I can't do that. In some ways it's painful because you kind of like being part of all these other initiatives because you're learning. But you, you realize very early on that it takes a certain kind of selfishness on your part to justify to your shareholders and others that all the side things you're doing really is benefiting the core company. I heard on a separate podcast this week, someone say, if I can give you the formula to success, you want to be successful, here it goes, and I'll pay for it if you want to start a business doing this. You got to work 60 to 80 hours a week for 20 years. If you're in and you'll do that, you'll be successful and I'll pay for it. You in? And the guy he was talking to basically said, no, I'm not willing to do that. Well, I've certainly had that conversation with people as well. So I fully subscribe to the fact that you have to be all in. It's not the 60 or 80 hours a week, frankly, although, you know, if you're really passionate about something, then even when you're 
you know, not at work, technically, you're thinking about it. So so it's not the 68 hours a week per se, but it's about the sacrifice, right? I mean, there really are real sacrifices. I mean, you know, for me, I've got a two-year-old at home and I've got a a wife that I've been with for 18 years now. Sometimes you have back-to-back trips. Sometimes you have to like, you know, like basically cancel Hmm. last minute on something because you're in the middle of a fundraise and, you know, your investor doesn't care that you have a family reunion that got started, you know, planned like nine months ago. So you end up with these sacrifices that you have to make and you make them not because you're being selfish, but you make them because you decided to go all in on this entrepreneurial vision because you thought that like you could actually do good in the world and really solve a problem for folks and really help people. And those are the sacrifices that comes with doing that. I wanted to ask about a time back when you were at Sun Edison, but I want to also look at it through the lens of current day. Jigger Shaw, I'm going to say the successful entrepreneur, the venture capitalist, the CEO. Can you take me back to the point in time where you were leaving the meeting and you knew that you'd secured the capital you needed for Sun Edison? Well, so that's the interesting thing about Sun Edison is we never had to secure capital. Mm. This is the funny thing is that like, I don't know exactly how the dot-com bubble like got fancified. Ultimately, like I basically worked for free from 2003 through 2005, mm-hmm. barely bringing home any money, actually zero actually, until March or April of 2005. And you know, it was one of those things where we actually had people begging us to take money. Like we yeah. had people saying, we know you've got something here. Let me put $100,000 into the company. Let me do this and that. You know, we basically started that whole company on $97,000 of my savings wow. out of a home equity loan in our house because it had appreciated so much because we were in right. D.C. And, you know, that was a, you know, sort of foresight of ours. We just sort of bought a house and it went up in value. <laughs> and... um we ran the company for two years on 97,000 bucks. We had a bunch of people that were saying, look, we really want to put money into you. I just kept saying no. And my partners were saying no. And, and then, you know, we suddenly needed money. Like Mm. suddenly around April of 2005, we needed some cash to be able to close this uh, legal bill that we had to close our first financing round with uh, Goldman Sachs on our project finance fund that we launched in June of 05. And so we called the folks back up and we did a round and we closed it in like 60 days. And so they had already wanted in. And I tell that to entrepreneurs all the time. And they're like, oh, Jigger, you're special. And that's how it happens. I'm like, Hmm. I'm not special. The thing is, is that everyone has something to invest, right? Whether it's their time or their treasure or whatever it is. And what I find is the vast majority of entrepreneurs squander that resource. Like the vast majority of entrepreneurs basically do not try to achieve some sort of milestone with that resource. They use all that time that they have to invest or a little bit of savings that they have. And they basically waste it on some sort of like half-baked market study or something. And I was like, why would you do a market study? Why wouldn't you actually like go get a customer, do a pilot project, like put something together? I mean, our first project for Whole Foods that we did at the end of 03, early 04, like I funded that on the back of credit cards, right? I mean, and it's just like one of those things where people were just sort of like, I just, I find that people, it's just weird to me that people go to angel investors and say, I have this business plan or whatever. And, you know, why don't you give me a couple hundred thousand dollars and people actually do it. I'd never give people a hundred thousand dollars for just having a business plan. That's crazy. What are some of the smart questions you see entrepreneurs starting to ask right now? You think is going to shape the way energy and the resource economy is happening in the next three to five years? Well, look, I mean, I think that this entire business ever since I've been a part of it has been about game theory, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's basically sort of that two by two matrix that basically says, you know, if you have 
two prisoners, prisoners dilemma, right? Like two like crooks, do they like rat each other out or do they like go in cahoots and not like say anything to the police? And that's what it's like with the utility companies for us, right? Or the, or the oil companies or whatever. It's basically like we're in this dance and the mm-hmm. question becomes not like how do I get them to do the right thing? Because that's just never work, right? It's basically like how do I do what I do? And then basically, the more successful I am, the more I back them into a corner and the more latitude they give me to be more successful and the more I back them into a corner, right? Like, how do you structure a deal where they just get back to a corner? Like, you look at where we are today. Sure, the Sierra Club made a, did a huge thing to shut down coal plants. I mean, a right. lot of work to shut down mm-hmm. coal plants. But right now... What we did was become so successful in the solar and wind industry that we have destroyed wholesale markets, just destroyed them with the merit order effects. And basically, like, they always have to buy our power first. And now we've cut the reimbursement rate for natural gas turbines by a little bit on the margin, a little bit on the margin, a little bit on the margin. And that little bit has caused them to lose a lot of their profitability. Right. Right. So now that we've, like, destroyed the margins for coal... Yeah. We're now in the business of destroying the margins for gas. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, some of these wholesale power markets led by these independent system operators are saying, oh, well, we're going to pay more in, in capacity payments, right? That'll screw those solar and wind guys. But our costs keep coming down, so we're fine with it. The cost of running natural gas keeps going up. So now AES, one of the top owners of natural gas power plants in the country, is basically saying battery storage is now cheaper than having right. a new peaker plant because of the costs of you know the capacity payments. Right. And so they just have nowhere to hide. Right. So the utility companies are like, oh, we're going to screw solar by raising demand charges. Right. And then lowering kilowatt hour charges. Well, now we've got solar plus storage so we can actually do both kilowatt hours and demand charges for customers. Right. And it's just it's one of those things where the utility just can't catch a break. Had they done all these things to like to strangle us back in like 2000, they may have succeeded. But we just kept at it and we just kept going and we just kept like doing all these things. And I find it fascinating when entrepreneurs come to me and say, actually, I'm doing this whole business and like basically it just depends on the utility company seeing the analysis that I've done and agreeing with it. And I was like, that's never going to happen. Like yeah. that's never going to happen. Like when you look at O Power and how successful O Power has been, right. right? O Power was successful not because they wanted the utility to decide with them. Yeah. It's because they extorted the utility. They went to the utility and said, Jigger's got your number and he is going to pass an energy efficiency portfolio standard in your state. And the way for you to get rid of that specter is for you to sign a contract with us. And we're so sexy and cool. We'll convince the regulator that you're being progressive on this and you don't have to like have an energy efficiency portfolio standard to mandate that you do efficiency. Right. And that was their whole business plan. They didn't care about actually doing efficiency or doing this or doing that. I mean, I'm sure the people who work there cared. Right. But the actual salespeople yeah. at O-Power were like, hey, utility, here's how you like stick an eye in those environmentalists and those clean energy entrepreneurs that are trying to like box you in with these energy efficiency portfolio standards. Right. That's a good business plan. Right. Because now you have a way of coming on the inside and the outside. AES is doing that right now with battery storage mm-hmm. with the utilities. So when the utilities say, well, I want to spend $75 million to upgrade a distribution substation, AES is petitioning against the utility at the Public Service Commission saying, well, for 20 million bucks, you can actually do it much cheaper with the battery. Right. And then when they win, they go to the utility company and say, hey, you want to buy a $20 million battery from me? I mean, it's an awesome business model. It's so smart. But that's what entrepreneurs need to do. And the ones that I've seen that are the most successful, the most interesting are doing that. Right. They're actually like figuring out how to like box in their sort of big monopoly competitors 
They're right. not basically going in and try to sell them vitamin pills. It sounds still like very much from a renewables perspective an us and them, them being the utility. And to win, we have to think about how to get around, basically how to make the utility want us or how to make the utility work around to our favor. Well, in the solar and wind space, that's never going to happen. Yeah. Right. To be clear. Right. Like, so like, I find the whole thing to be fascinating. It's like, I'm a utility company. I like as the CEO make $20 million a year for basically doing nothing, just sitting on my ass and like, you know, enjoying bonbons as the monopoly. Yeah. And then I'm like, haven't had a market share increase since 2003. Right. Yeah. I mean, the entire country uses the same amount of power in the United States as we did in 2003. There's no growth. Right. At all. Right. Right. If you talk to a utility company and you say, how good are you promoting electric vehicles? They're horrible. Elon Musk has done 50 times more than a utility company has at promoting electric vehicles. Right. Right. How good are you at promoting, you know, ground source heat pumps? Horrible. Mm. Right. Horrible. Right. So they're not doing anything to gain market share. Right. I mean, you got people on the margins, Mary Powell or Green Mountain Power or this Mm -hmm. person or this real co-op. But like as a sector, they're not doing anything. And then you've got DERs like solar or you've got, you know, wind or whatever going in and saying, we're going to like take all this market share and upset the apple cart. And then you have the grid operations people saying this is going to like cause rolling blackouts and, you know, and other folks saying we need baseload power and all these other things. Right. And so to suggest for a moment that the utility as the monolith is going to change is crazy. Right yeah. now, individual people who work there. Awesome. Awesome people. And when you, and when you take them aside and you buy them a beer, they're like, you know, you guys are doing great stuff. Keep doing what you're doing. We love you guys. I know it doesn't feel that way, but you should do right. it. So, and we work closely with utility companies all the time. I was on the board of S power. We built 1300 megawatts of solar in like two years. Right. I mean, you know, you don't do that without a lot of friends in the utility side. So I'm not suggesting that the utility companies are impossible to work with. But to suggest that they're going to fully embrace renewables, shut down all their coal and natural gas plants and figure out how to like get us to 100 percent clean energy in the shortest amount of time is crazy. Yeah. Crazy talk. Right. So so I don't want to I don't want to sit here and say that they're going to get on side. Now, mm. Dominion, Duke, Nextera is going to be like, oh, yeah, well, we'll buy projects as long as they're not right. in our state. Or if they're in our state, we want to rate base it like Dominion's done. And so so that stuff they're going to do. But, I, you know, like and I don't I don't think this is like, you know, a bad thing. Like, I don't hate the utility companies. I just think that like to trust that they're actually on our side, like seems like you're bringing the fox into the hen house. At what point is creating, as you have with energy efficiency standards, portfolio standards, et cetera, is that an attempt to bring them in to our side versus a way to force it down their throat? Well, I mean, look, you know, utility companies in general believe that as long as they get repaid Mm -hmm. for meeting legislative mandates, Mm -hmm. then they're good. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't know that they, in the most cases, are are lobbying for RPSs and energy efficiency portfolio standards, right. although XL Energy has occasionally lobbied for a higher standard in Colorado and some other folks. But once it's passed, usually they say, look, you know, it's the law of the land and so we're we going to respect the law. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's fair. And there's certainly been a lot of solar and wind that's been built in the last two years that are outside of RPSs just because we're so cheap. But I still don't think utility companies in general are going to be these companies on the solar and wind side who embrace it fully. Now, I think that is something that the battery storage industry is at a crossroads on. 
I think that if they play their cards right, the battery storage industry might actually get the utility companies completely on side, and the utility companies might just say, we're going to own all the batteries, and we right. love it all, and we're going to integrate in our grid operations. And that's wonderful, because I think we need batteries, and I'm glad that the utilities love batteries. And so I think that the Energy Storage Association and others need to play their cards better and need to like actually embrace it fully, because right now they have this fight between like the industry players and the utility players. And I told them they should just go all in on the utility players, yeah. get them to pay a million bucks a year to be a member and just call it a day and make the industry players sort of like adjunct. Right. Um, sort of a SEPA approach. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Because I think that approach is great for batteries. Yeah. It's just not great for the solar industry because, you know, like you can't have sort of the fox trying to run the industry. What do you see in terms of business model innovation happening now moving forward that's similar to kind of adapting the PPAs to solar back in a decade ago? Well, you know, I think that it's figuring out how to really get money to small deals. You define small? Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, in the infrastructure finance world, small is generally defined as a hundred million dollar deal. Right. Right. And a lot of our deals, we're talking about $1 million deals. Yeah. Right. And so that sub $100 million space is not going to get done just by itself. If we, like, I was talking to some energy storage folks and they're like, oh, Jigger, we're going to do a 100 megawatt project. And do we still need to follow all your dinky rules about standardization and, you know, technology yeah. risk and all that stuff? And I was like, no. I mean, if you're doing a 100 megawatt project and that's a $200 million project, then, you know, you can actually hire Black and Visa to do this report and this independent engineer to do that and this thing to do that and, and you, can, you can just spend five million bucks to like you know get all the transaction costs done to do a 200 million dollar deal right right but like you can't do that for a five million dollar project i mean you just can't spend five million bucks in a five million dollar project on overhead and so it's just one of those things where if you're doing these sub hundred million dollar projects and in our case a lot of times sub 50 million dollar projects you really need a certain formula to be met and, you know, my big thing is basically like, you know, making sure that everyone in the entrepreneurship space understands that formula. Because if you're chasing deals that will never get funded by me, who's one of the most flexible investors in the space, there's no hope that you have in hell of really like getting other people to do it. Now, you maybe get some high net worth individual at a family right. office to do one deal. Yeah. But they're not going to be able to systematically, institutionally invest in your projects. If you're a Helioscope fan, you're going to love this because the industry's best design and engineering software platform is now the industry's best sales platform. That's right. With Helioscope's new integrated proposals, you can quickly move from input to finished product, complete with payback analysis in just minutes. And with customizable reports, you can build a customer-facing proposal that impresses and puts your best foot forward. If you didn't know that Proposals is out, it's in beta now. So make sure you reach out and request that it get turned on. Should be rolling out to the rest of you in the Helioscope Landia sometime in Q1. Head to mysuncast.com. You can click on the Helioscope banner on the home page if you don't know what we're talking about. And as a Suncast listener, you'll be gifted an extra 30 days free trial. That's right, 60 days to see what Helioscope can do for you. Find out why more solar companies trust Helioscope than any other software on the market. You know, I wonder, what would you automate to help your business grow? Not just bigger, but better. Would it be invoicing, reporting, project planning, sending notifications, tracking subcontractors think of all the critical yet tedious tasks that take up so much of your working day 
Wouldn't it be great if they were done automagically for you? What if you could do all that and more within a little piece of software? With PowerHub, you can. PowerHub helps you save time and money so that you can do more and focus on what matters. Go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast to find out more. One of the things I think is fascinating about you is that you're, I would say, your general breadth of knowledge, multidisciplinary and multi-region. So I am going to play part of the Hot or Not where I say, you know, name a specific market and you kind of give me your thoughts. So uh, we'll jump into Hot or Not and we'll start with the Latin American countries specifically and then we'll move into more uh, more broad topics. So what about Mexico? What do you think about Mexico? Hot? Yeah. I mean, I think that we've got some of the smartest people that I know are working in Mexico to unlock residential solar. Mm -hmm. They've got, you know, 21, 25 cents a kilowatt hour that they're paying down there. There's a ton of utility scale solar that's going in right now. Utility scale wind. I mean, it feels like Mexico is getting the fact that that this is a very lucrative place by which to attract investment dollars. So Mexico had a wind market long before it had a solar market. And I feel like in Central America, that's true as well for Honduras. It's true for Costa Rica. It's certainly true in, uh, well, it kind of truly happened all around the same time. It's true for Brazil. Do you feel like there are bellwether markets that in the solar industry, as we look to emerging markets, we should be looking to follow like wind? Is there something like that that you've seen as an analog? You know, I think wind primarily utility scale wind, Mm -hmm. generally has a different character to solar in the marketplace. And so you find that wind really competes well on all requirements, RFP, where they just want lowest possible number. They just rank them on a spreadsheet and then call it a day. Where solar generally benefits is when you take a more thoughtful look at air conditioning loads and you start to say, look, there's this peak forming and solar really can shave the peak. Mm -hmm. And so wind really does clear the way for folks to be more open-minded for solar. So I think you're probably right on the bellwether side. I just think that, you know, it's the solar really has a different set of characteristics to wind. We'll go from uh, Mexico, which led to a stimulating conversation. How about Argentina? Well, Argentina is open now, right? I mean, you got a new leader and the the new leader seems more sensible and has Mm -hmm. gotten the um, successful auctions. Well, and it's also gotten the like sort of enthusiasm of bond traders back. And um, I don't know that it's warranted. I mean, Argentina like fails on its bonds on a regular basis, but, but, you know, it's open for business and the solar guys basically, as long as they can actually like, you know, get those projects funded, they're ready to go. So I think Argentina's, you know, definitely a hot market right now. Yeah. And it seems like there's a, uh, the, the distributed market is actually going to pick up with equal steam in Argentina. How about Brazil? Well, you know, Brazil's definitely one of those markets that sort of was not, and then it was hot, and then Mm -hmm. it's not, and then now maybe hot again. And, you know, ultimately the problem with Brazil is that Brazil has this sort of top-down sort of mentality, which then caused it to have these huge problems with its currency and others. And so it was really tough to get stuff financed there for the last couple of years. But it sounds like, you know, folks are back in, uh, particularly on DG projects, because a lot of the interior of the country are paying 10, 15 cents a kilowatt hour, even for a steel mill. Yeah. And so you actually have the ability to build a 20 megawatt system right next to a steel mill paying 10, 15 cents a kilowatt hour or so. I do want your opinion on, and not just maybe the solar market as a, as a unique entity, but the infrastructure market for the Caribbean. You, you were at Carbon War Room for a while. Caribbean is a, is a darling of the Carbon War Room. What do you think is going to happen? And perhaps even in the wake of you know these recent hurricanes, how do we rebuild consciously in the Caribbean with an eye towards sustainability? 
Yeah, I've been working a long time in the Caribbean. I mean, I actually first started going down there in 1997 with Atlantic Orient Corporation. You know, what I've concluded in the Caribbean is that they really, they really can't be helped. Mm-hmm. They really are just fundamentally flawed as decision makers. And so really, I think the only way to solve it is to, you know, be able to buy the utility company. And there's definitely several folks who are for sale. And so I think getting someone to come in, buy the utility company, you know, turn it around into a renewable energy haven, not to do it for decarbonization purposes, but just because it's a way more profitable way to run a utility, probably where this is going to go. I just think, you know, after all this work we put into the carbon worm and the operation's still going. So I certainly don't want to undermine the folks who are working so hard on it. But at the same time, I just feel like the Caribbean is one of those places where like, they just have these powerful interests that want things to move on a 20-year scale, not on a two or three-year scale, mm. even though the economics work. I'd love to dig into the lessons learned. I understand and from previous conversations that your perspective on uh, Sun Edison is from the age-old question, what would you do, do, do differently is nothing, right? It, you kind of feel like Sun Edison achieved the goals and, and it's sort of, it is what it is. I would love to understand how you view the world differently post Sun Edison into Generate Capital and how that experience influences your investment thesis today. What happened to Sun Edison in the end was tragic. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had thousands of people who are just extraordinary people. And even now, I think most people would admit that they're some of the brightest people that have ever worked in the solar industry and have left a lasting legacy on the solar industry. So, you know, I'm very proud of what they've done. But I think at the same time, it shows what ignorance and hubris, you know, does to people, right? Mm. I mean, we basically had a CEO that never understood solar and in a mod. Yeah. And you had a guy who never listened to advice in Carlos, mm. who basically <laughs> ran the company. And the two of them together were toxic, yeah. right? And I think that, you know, whenever that occurs, you end up having these extraordinary highs and extraordinary lows yeah. based on, you know, just a lack of pure and adulterated uh, discipline. And, you know, that's something that we had at Sun Edison when I was there, not because of me, but just because we had a great management team. team. Yeah. We understood that we were a construction company that was managing cash flow. You know, I think Sun Edison like lost sight of that in the end. I think now that I'm at Generate, I do take those lessons. I mean, I still believe that we're basically in the infrastructure business Mm -hmm. and the infrastructure business means that you have, you know, reasonable lows and reasonable highs, right? That like, I'm not, I'm never going to make 35% returns on infrastructure and I should never accept returns that are below six or 7% on infrastructure. Yeah. And that's the band that, you know, I think the band is tighter than that, but like we're within a band. And I just think it's extraordinary to me how people come and say, well, I'm going to like break the mold. Like, I mean, you know, Sun Edison for a while there thought their cost of capital was 4% coming out of the yield, right? Because they thought if they really bought these high quality assets from Invenergy, their stock price would go up, yada, yada, yada. So they bought those deals at like four or 5%. And, you know, like Michael Polsky was, you know, running to the bank, which was great. And he cashed out before the end. But like at the end of the day, they did not figure out a way to defy gravity, right? And they should have known that. They should have known that the raw returns of renewable energy assets should never get to five, right? right? And so I, I think that we've learned that at Generate. We certainly believe very strongly that there is there are laws of gravity. And even if you're in a bubble, the laws of gravity still apply mm. and that you have to be conscious and disciplined enough to know that bubbles pop and that when they pop, like your discipline will be rewarded. Yeah. And so, you know, I think we've done a pretty good job of being disciplined as a result of, you know, what happened to Sun Edison. But but it's still tragic. I mean, you know, the employees who had bad leadership didn't deserve, you know, to have been tainted with that. 
Jigar, I know that you've been exposed to some phenomenal leaders in the span of your career. What are some key lessons or takeaways that you carry from mentors? Something they've taught you, something that you pass on to those that you now lead? Well, I think the important piece here is that like, is that there are things that you can learn and then the things that you um, really have to experience. Mentorship is really about helping people with things that have to be experienced, right? I mean, there's a lot of ridiculously smart people that I come across in my life. And, and the mentors that I've had that have been the best mentors knew that no matter how much they told me stuff, that I was really never going to get it, right? That ultimately that I really needed to experience it for myself. Mm. And what they were really doing was teaching me sort of where the escape hatch was. Can you give me an example of something where you, I mean, an, an example of a failure or a time where you, you realized, oh, this is what he meant. This is what, you know, you needed that mentor. Well, like employee culture, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like, you know, you always find yourself in a situation where you've hired a really bad apple, right? I mean, they interviewed great, everything sounded great. And, you know, you're just one of those people who's like, God, I really want to give them another chance. And I really want to make sure that they like get full experience. And do we need to give them more training? And like, is it really my fault? All those things. But then what you find out is like, if you don't really let them go, then it makes the entire team suffer because the entire team sort of like, now I'm in a B situation, right? And like, God, you learn that in business school and your mentors tell you that, you know, and, and you just like never really can fully process it until it happens to you. And you're like, oh my God, this situation's happening to me. I need to like get out of my own like comfort zone mm. and like figure something out. But the same thing's true with partners. I'm shocked by how many people I meet. And I fortunately learned this lesson early, but like others don't. Like you always need to surround yourself with equals. It's shocking to me how many entrepreneurs surround themselves with people who are really incapable of working at their level. Mm. And then when they're working 90 hours a week right. because they're compensating for the rest of their team, then they're like, Jigger, like, I just need someone who's like good enough. I can't find someone who's good enough. And I'm like, no, you're just not allowing yourself to share the wealth with someone else, right? Like that person needs like a lot of large amount of equity. They need to like actually like feel like they're part of the team. Like I've always surrounded myself with equals. Like, I mean, you know, whether it's my two partners at Generate or my three partners that turn into five partners at Sun Edison or even my like two partners at Bacarb Morum. Like they were my equals in every way, shape or form. I never made a decision without getting their bias. I find it fascinating how many people come to me five years later and say, oh my God, Jigger, you're absolutely right. I should have found somebody who was my equal to share the load with right and be able to like you know kibitz with and like basically like cry on their Mm. shoulder and you know and that that is just amazing to me how like i luckily had great mentors that taught me that stuff early one of the ways that similarly folks learn is by gauging their level of traction on existing knowledge plumbing the depths of wisdom from the last few centuries right so books of course is what i'm talking about i read a lot my listeners read a lot. One of the things I love to hear is what book you've given away the most and why. And of course, my answer is your book, but I'm curious what you're... you're... <laughs> extraordinarily kind to say that. So the book that I've given away the most is a book called Fooled by Randomness by right. Nassim Philip mm-hmm. Nichols. It was the first book he wrote. It was before Black Swan and all the other mm-hmm. stuff. And I actually thought it was better than Black Swan. Um, it's crazy hard to read. It's a like a deep philosophy book, basically. But I think in the end, what it basically says is that like, like you can't be fooled by the fact that like things went your way. And so therefore you're a rock star. Yeah. And you see that all the time, particularly from rich people. 
Mm-hmm. Like, it's amazing to me, like, how many times Mark Cuban, like, is like, I'm a genius. Yeah. You're not a genius. You just got freaking lucky that Yahoo, like, bought your company for a billion dollars and you were able to call the stock. I mean, you know, like, it's one of those things where there's all these people who believe their own bull, right? And, like, it's one thing to, like, use it as a way to, like, project your own success and persona to get more things to go your way. Mm-hmm. That's totally something that people do all the time. But it's another thing to actually believe it. <laughs> There's a lot of people believe it. And the problem with that is it means that they make bad decisions later. Right. Right. Because they really believe that they so walk on water. Make decisions out of hubris. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like when Bill Gates, like, you know, like, like decided to declare war against the teachers unions, mm. you know, like he just was like, well, I'm that smart because I'm the richest guy on the earth and that, whatever. When, when his entire approach to education failed, he never apologized. Right. But all those people were negatively affected. Right. Like, mm. I just feel like, that book had a profound impact on me and like in humbling me and realizing that like the vast majority of my success has been luck, mm. you know, and that's okay. I feel okay about that. But like, you should know that that's true. Like this right. notion that like I created all of my success and like, I'm the smartest guy on the planet. It's just not. Similarly, is there a book that you would point to, or maybe it's a couple that have influenced your leadership style or the way that you view building a team? I've read a lot of books in that area and there isn't just one I would say that I could point to. I think the books I really like to read and learn from are ones that are more historical in nature. It's a great book called like House of Morgan, which is like how JP Morgan really started his empire and other things. Fascinating. Like like I, I feel very strongly that people who do these like professional management books all the time. Yeah. There's some really good ones like Green to Gold from, you know, Andrew right. Winston and those guys. I'm not out to create a Fortune 500 company. Yeah. And that's what most of those books are for. They're like, how do you create a Fortune 500 company? That's not my shtick. Right. right? My shtick is more that like, you know, how do you create a team that people really want to be a part of and people feel empowered enough to stay at, right? Like that's my big thing, right? It's like, cause I'm not the smartest guy. And I know people give me a lot of kudos and I think that's, I appreciate them, but like, it's more that like, like asset management is really hard. Yeah. I've, I've been blessed in my career to have the most credible asset management people around me, right? Like accounting and controlling, yeah. like the controller stuff, right? FP and A, that stuff is so difficult and is not something I'm good at. And I've been blessed to have people who are there and like i just like i work so hard to just empower them so that they like feel like they are actually able to do their job what one thing do you do consistently that yields the biggest impact in your life i listen you know it's one of those weird things where there are a lot of people out there not just listen but like there's a lot of people out there that i find like as they get more successful they restrict access to themselves and i honestly have never understood that like an idea is an idea is an idea and they're all equal in my mind yeah and so i find that like i probably talked about 600 people a year on the business plan side, you know, and they pitch business me. plan for your, Oh, for other people talking to you. So yeah, on like, average two a day or like yeah. one and a half a day. Yeah. Gracious. Like, you know, people who are like, I want to run an idea by you. I'm going to get, well, I, I, I force them to achieve a higher standard of quality than just running an idea by me. Yeah. So I'll push them back and say, look, send me something to read before I talk to you and yeah. all that stuff. But like, 
but it's usually something about like, I think that here's how I think, you know, I can do a, a, you know, initial coin offering to help the solar industry. Or here's how I think that we can actually figure out how to like use this obscure part of the legal, you know, like the tax code to be able to like offer residential customers a direct ownership of utility scale community solar. And, you know, like some of them I get and some of them I don't get. And I've learned a long time ago that if I don't get it, it's usually not that they didn't explain to me well. It's probably just a bad idea. Like, I, I've learned to trust my instincts a lot. I find it fascinating how many people I meet who, like, have stopped talking to, like, the 23-year-olds and the 31-year-olds and the 85-year-olds wow. who, like, just genuinely have good ideas because they don't think that they're in their same league or whatever. Well, I love to talk, so you can send them to me. I'll, <laughs> I'll never stop talking. <laughs> well, let's end today with a bold prediction. I feel like you probably make these from time to time, but Jigger, what one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Well, I don't know that I actually have a bold prediction that no one else is tracking, but I will give voice to predictions that other people are doing, which is that, so like, I really believe that there is a disconnect between these sort of pronouncements by China and India around getting off of petrol powered vehicles and moving to electric vehicles or, you know, going to renewable energy and moving away from coal and sort of the intelligentsia. Like mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, whether it's the American consensus people or whether it's the World Bank or whether it's others, they honestly can't fathom why these countries would say this stuff. And when you talk to the countries, it's pretty obvious. They believe that they are under the thumb of the fossil fuel industry and that they want to be able to wow. determine their own destiny. Yeah. Right. India is like, look, I don't care whether it's realistic or not. I'm done like, you know, playing like footsie with all of these people to get enough gasoline and diesel to power our growth. Wow. Like we're done, right? Like we're, we're tired of all of your like games and all the like sort of like treaties we have to sign, all the bullshit. Like we just want to determine our own future. And so they are going all in on this stuff. And it's shocking to me how people don't get that. Hmm. People are just like, oh, those guys are just making pronouncements. They don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. If they really did the engineering and the math, they wouldn't be doing that. And that's not how we did it in the U.S. Like when we were like going to the moon, we just said we're going to the moon. Right. We have no idea how we're going to do it. But even when we passed, you know, like the legislation for EPA and banned lead and gasoline or banned like, you know, like some of the worst pollution from coal plants, we didn't know how we were going to do it. Scrubbers came after like we actually banned it. Right. right? Then the like, technological solutions came after. We no longer like have the desire to do big things in the United States anymore. Mm-hmm. We're just sort of like, whatever, we're going to wait for the technology to be fully mature and then maybe we'll implement it. You know, it used to be that we just made these pronouncements and then figured them out. Interesting to me that like the Chinese and the Indians are like, we're going to do this. We have no idea how we're going to do this, but we're going to do this because it's in our strategic and economic best interests. And I just find that fascinating. I love it. Jigger, I think that there's so much fascinating about this conversation. I find fascinating uh, that that you seem to have an endless amount of complex thought around these topics. (laughs) I appreciate it. And I hope that the listeners don't find it too effusive. I really appreciate it. I look forward to having you back. I definitely want to talk about two specific things. One, electrification of the auto industry and how that's going to impact and the, the ramifications of storage and renewables. Also, the other is blockchain. So we'll, sure. we'll leave that. We'll, we'll dangle that carrot there and we'll, we'll have a call one day and, and catch up on those. But thanks so much for being here, man. Oh, my pleasure. Hey, Warrior. Once again, happy holidays. 
It has been a fantastic year for Suncast, and it's all because of you tuning in week after week. And you know, I know there's others out there who are looking for great content for their commute, their run, etc. So if you're in the giving spirit, I'd be honored if you'd give Suncast a rating and review on iTunes. Or better yet, if you share your favorite episode, maybe it was this one, with a colleague, friends, family, it does help us get discovered, and it really makes a difference, so thank you. Next week, I'll be doing another solo episode, taking a look back at 2018 in review. We had some amazing interviews, and I was asked recently by a new listener what I would curate if I were to outline the top episodes to check out. So stay tuned for that, as I'll do just that next week, along with some reflection on where Suncast is going in 2019. In the meantime, I do look forward to interacting with you via Twitter, LinkedIn, and inside the Suncast tribe communication channels so solar tribe 2018 is nearly over i look forward next week to wishing you a happy new year remember you are what you listen to thanks again for showing up it's half the battle